Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I have some good news for you. The hottest take. It's back. Oh, yeah. Monday through Thursday, four times a week, you hear from me, Chris Ryan, Sean Fantasy, Mallory Rubin, Wazdeen Lambrey, Van Lathan, Julie Lippman, many other ringer staffers. You get one take, you got to defend it to the death. Sports takes, pop culture takes, food takes, airplane takes. Oh, yeah. It's coming back. First episode drops August 29th. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. It is Monday, October 3rd. Welcome to October. It was pegged as the biggest TV matchup in years. HBO's big Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, going head-to-head with Amazon Prime Video's billion-dollar TV show, The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power. Very different shows, but it's rare that we have shows of this caliber, this IP, and this price tag up against each other every week for everyone to judge against each other. That's not to say nothing about the Star Wars show that is also on right now, Andor. Now, finally, we have some objective numbers to judge whether one show is beating the other and by what metric. Nielsen finally released their data this past week, and there were some surprises in that data. To get to the bottom of it, because it's not an easy question, it's not like the old days where Nielsen would release overnight ratings and you could judge what show was winning. It's a much more complicated question. So to analyze all the data, I wanted to have Julia Alexander in here to go through it all. She's an analyst at Parrot Analytics and a contributor at Puck, where I work. She writes about the streaming wars and she does exactly this kind of analysis. So we're going to go through all things House of the Dragon, Lord of the Rings, and who's actually winning. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Julia Alexander. She is the director of strategy at Parrot Analytics and a contributor to Puck, where I work. Julia, welcome. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Are you watching Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, or House of the Dragon, or both? I'm watching both. I, I I watch anything that has like elves and or sword fights. <laughs> I usually don't, but for some reason I'm into Lord of the Rings. And even though I didn't read really the books or I'm not kind of a nerd or anything, I just like the show. So I'm watching that one. I'm not a Game of Thrones person. I'm not watching um, House of the Dragon. But really? We, I know. I'm in the minority. My wife's watching it. She likes it. But the we finally have some numbers that are real from Nielsen, which people know as the ratings company. They do streaming ratings now as well. They measure minutes 
that people are watching something. So we finally can do a quasi comparison of these two massive shows that, you know, Rings of Power is the most expensive TV show ever made. House of the Dragon is the prequel to one of the most beloved and popular TV shows ever made. And we, they, for some reason chose to put them on head to head and now we can do a real comparison. So what is, what are the numbers telling you an analyst here? Yeah. So in a land of apples to bananas, it's like our rare moment for an apples to apples. So the numbers that we got out of Nielsen last week, um, and obviously we'll get more numbers about current episodes or newer episodes in the week the weeks ahead. We had 1.25 billion minutes watched. So it's really hard to show? break for Rings of Power. And okay. so it's really hard to break this down into exact viewership because the way people may watch something, you know, someone watches one episode and they're done. Someone watches both episodes twice. So the metric that I like to go by, other analysts like to go by, are completed views. Really simple math formula for it. Um, and if we kind of break that down, we get to about 9.5 million completed views based solely on those numbers from Nielsen. Um, and the thing about the Rings of Power and the way that Nielsen really reports these streaming ratings is that everything that people People would watch, you know, on their connected TVs or whatever the way Nielsen tracks it in those homes um, is kind of the 100% view from Nielsen. When we compare that to the uh, to House of the Dragon, we have to remember that the way that Nielsen reports the House of the Dragon numbers is it kind of splits it up across different reports. There's the streaming numbers, which is what you see a lot of headlines compare, right? Where you know House of the Dragon is bested by Rings of Power, whatever it might be. They're looking at the streaming ratings. They're looking at the cable ratings. You know, there's the kind of live plus three-day, plus four-day, plus seven-day ratings that they're looking at. Um, so it's still apples to bananas. But if we just compare those two, what we kind of know is that Rings of Power did about 9.5 million completed views, and uh, House of the Dragon did 9.9 .9 completed views, according to both Nielsen and HBO Max. So House of the Dragon is bigger than Rings of Power, even if you take out the people who watch on linear, regular old HBO. Yeah, and the thing about, so when we talk about ratings, which is why it's such an interesting conversation right now, is there's no concrete way to measure anything. So Nielsen is the go-to for the domestic market. It's the go-to for a very specific way of watching a television show. But then we have TV Time, we have Parrot Analytics, where I work, we have um, Real Good. There's a bunch of other ways of kind of examining how people are watching a show, how they're engaging with the show. And the thing we have to remember about ratings is that it is just one metric for success. It, it is a form of engagement. But when you look at what Amazon and what HBO Max really want, it is to bring in new subscribers. It is to retain those subscribers in a year. Um, and for Amazon, it's also to encourage, encourage shopping across the different uh, various retail chains, or retail, excuse me, services that they have. And so when we look at those two metrics side by side, what it tells us is that more people in this one kind of measured group are engaging with House of the Dragon over Rings of Power. But if we study, you know, the last five weeks of these episodes kind of coming out and being head to head with each other, House of the Dragon actually bests Rings of Power in a lot of different areas. They like what? totally... So if you look at Google search and Google search, we think of in the industry as intent to watch. It's very much like, how do I watch this? Where is it airing? Who is this person? It's a form of engagement that we rank pretty high in the industry. That 
absolutely demolishes Rings of Power. When I looked at it, both on a U.S. and global level, the ranking for House of the Dragon was like at a 70, and the ranking for Rings of Power was at like a 7 or an 8. When we look at my company, for example, Parrot, when we look at it, the demand metric, which we look at as a combination of consumption and social media activity, Google search interest, et cetera, we see that it doubles Rings of Power, both globally and domestically. Um, when you look at all, all these other kind of, we look at Samba TV numbers, they're another measurement company that looks at um, how many people are watching in certain homes. They look at connected TVs, Rings of the Power, just right over, um, excuse me, House of the Dragon, just right over Rings of Power. Uh, and so what we're seeing, you know, in this mid, as we hit the mid-season point for both these shows, is that House of the Dragon is definitely the show that people are looking at. And if, you know, if you're younger, if you're watching things on on TikTok, if that's kind of your second screen while you're watching a show, uh, House of the Dragon is 100%, you know, far more viral, far more engaged with on TikTok than Rings of Power. What's interesting to me is that these shows, like you said, do different things for different platforms. And it doesn't mean that Rings of Power is not a success just because it's getting beaten by a Game of Thrones spinoff. Right. Amazon, I think, is getting bang for their buck out of this, although it's a lot of bucks. They're getting people signing up for the service. They're getting people shopping. That is a global service. So they are showing this to 200 and something countries at the same time around the world, whereas HBO, even though HBO Max is growing into different parts of the world, there are places where the HBO content still does not live on HBO platforms around the world. It is sold and aired on a, a different service. So you can't necessarily quantify how many people are signing up to an HBO service to watch this show. So I think it's a, it's a fascinating subject these days because it's not like the old days where Friends and Seinfeld would air on a 30, Thursday night and then you would wake up on a Friday and say, oh, they delivered X number of eyeballs for these advertisers and you could compare. It's a much more complicated question. Right. And the reason that that question is coming up has changed. So just to your point about Amazon and Rings of Power, something that was inherently fascinating to me when I was looking at research from, from my company was that the country outside of the U.S. where there was the strongest level of demand, and again, we can assume that demand equals um, intent to watch, which is therefore monetizable, uh, was South Korea. And I thought that was really interesting in part because uh, there, there was a, a media conference last week, a bunch of journalists were there in Asia, kind of looking at the streaming landscape and entertainment landscape in, in Asia. And Amazon Prime is a, uh, Prime Video rather, is a huge streaming service in, in Asia. It's also a huge streaming service in other parts of the world. And, you know, someone I was talking to at Amazon specifically pointed out that Prime Video is a really strong driver of subscriber growth, especially in markets where e-commerce is like one, not a thing at all, or two, it's really hard to get shipping to. So you're just not thinking about them as a retail site the way that we think of them domestically. Right, it's the exact opposite here. I mean, you think of Amazon exactly. first for the place you get your diapers and toilet paper, and then, oh yeah, they have a Lord of the Rings show. Exactly. And I think, you know, back to the last part of what you were saying, which is extremely important. When we looked at ratings, TV ratings back in the day, of course, it was to see like how many people are watching the show. We want to know it's important. We as humans like to watch what other people are watching. Uh, but two, it was designed to help advertisers as well. It was designed to know, okay, if you put your thing here, here's the rating and the group that you're going to be on. 
the value proposition between the company that was making the show, the distributor, and then the audience was much different than it is now for a lot of these companies that are producing their own shows, distributing via their own streaming services, and are owning that relationship. The question that they want to ask themselves is, let's take a Rings of Power. That show is a high acquisition driver. It's going to bring people into Amazon Prime Video. It's going to get people to maybe use Amazon Prime. The question is, what is the level of affinity then between that show and other shows? Which is a way to think about if you go to watch Rings of Power, are you going to watch another Amazon Prime original series or film? Are you going to watch something that is exclusively licensed to Amazon Prime? In Netflix, this is called their efficiency rating. It all goes into their efficiency, which is what is the actual measure of success on the show outside of just pure engagement. And so we look at House of the Dragon, there's much stronger overlap between people who are watching that show and the HBO Max Warner Brothers catalog, which means that there's probably not a bunch of huge customers going in for that show, but those that do are more likely to stay 12, you know, 12 months later. So therefore the lifetime value of that subscriber much higher. The revenue on that show is much more important when you look. Well, but that's okay. But just to say, I mean, it is a prequel to an existing hit on that same service. So they're already predisposed to be HBO slash Game of Thrones fans, and they're being super served this new show. Very different from a new franchise, as well known as Lord of the Rings is, this is a new franchise to Amazon Prime Video. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so when you're, if you're Amazon, you know, the goal might be, we want to grab another 10, 15 million. I'm not, I'm just saying this number, this is not the actual number, 10, 15 million subscribers. That's what we want the show to do. And then we can maybe convert them into retail people or we convert them into just watching more shows. We put ads on certain shows. Like it's a really big deal for us. If you're Warner Media, excuse me, Warner Brothers Discovery at this point, um, what you're looking for is to maybe bring in one, two million subscribers, you know, domestically or whatever it might be, and then really retain those customers. Because inevitably, when you go to put in a price increase or whatever it might be, you know that the perceived value of that relationship to that customer is really strong. They'll stay with you through the through the up hikes or whatever you do. You know, the thing about the ratings with Amazon specifically and Rings of Power as we get to know more about it is there's a lot of things to compare it to domestically when we think about the money they spent. So the big one that I think about, and of course it's not apples to apples, but as is my thing in Puck these days, none of this is apples to apples anymore. But if we look at what Rings of Power is designed to do, we look at what Thursday Night Football is kind of designed to do and what that has done for Amazon in terms of them saying, you know, this is this comes from Amazon, but they said they had more signups within that three-hour window to Amazon Prime than on Prime Day, you know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday kind of combined. That's a huge deal for Amazon domestically because we came from it at a moment of people who have Amazon Prime in the States are going to have it. Like it's, it's been around long enough. It's now saturated enough that we're like this. It's, it's kind of what we assume with Netflix a little bit where it's like maybe there's some churn and people go back, but Netflix has kind of hit that threshold. And what we're saying is like, no, there's a huge untapped audience, probably a little bit of an older audience who's saying like, actually, I will sign up for this in order to get this, to get access to football. Again, football's football. We can't compare it to Rings of Power. But if Amazon can say, yes, we've gained this many subscribers in the U.S. and in emerging markets that we want to be in more, and also in you know Latin America and Europe and the Middle East and areas that we are continuously building, that's a success for them. But you know, is it the success compared to? Are they going to hit the level of success needed to justify? That price tag, even if you amortize, uh, um, even with the uh, amortization aspect in it, over the next few years, it's a huge cost. And I think the, what the numbers say to me right now is that they're not going to hit 
what they would need to get that strong return on investment doesn't mean it's a failure to your point exactly. It just means that it might have been a little bit more expensive than they should have paid. This episode is brought to you by Netflix, presenting The Crown as the beloved series bids farewell. Deserving of praise on every level, says New York Magazine. Throughout its groundbreaking six-season run, The Crown has featured three different casts, earned 273 award nominations, and secured 70 award wins, including outstanding drama series. Critics rave, The Crown secures its place in the pantheon of television history. From creator and writer Peter Morgan, the final season stars Imelda Staunton, Dominic West, and SAG Award winner Elizabeth Debicki. The Crown, for your Emmy consideration in all categories. So basically what you're saying is that Rings of Power is not cost-effective for Amazon, what they spend versus what they're getting. Right. And I mean, you know, and it's, I, that's 100% accurate in my opinion. And also, I think it's very difficult to have this conversation, as I know you know, Matt, about television and the cost of something when we're talking about Amazon or Apple. And it's just right. like... It's it's they can do things. I mean, if if this really was just something to kind of, you know, stroke Jeff Bezos's ego, right? It's like I want the Lord of the Rings show. I want to do this thing. I think there's an audience for it. I, you know, I'm going to do it. That's different than what you know Zaslav has to think about over at Warner Brothers Discovery, where there's a bunch of debt that he's trying to figure out. That the the co- he isn't just selling diapers and stuff to kind of offset that. There isn't a, a music service and a game streaming service and, and other things that Amazon makes money on, um, a har- an entire hardware line. So- Yeah, they would, I mean, literally, if they spent a billion dollars on a TV show at HBO, people would get fired. Yes, right, and this is exactly it. And so I think we get this tech mentality that can't come is Amazon and Apple right now kind of came up via Netflix of like, we're gonna spend a bunch of money and it's gonna pay off in the long run. We're gonna build our subscriber base. We're gonna be known for something. And I think that's the bigger conversation about Rings of Power. If we ask ask anyone in the industry what Amazon Prime Video is, it's really hard to get an answer. It's like, oh, well, this is what defines them, you know? This series for them, alongside The Boys, alongside Wheel of Time, over the last, you know, I would say year, year and a half, they've definitely made progress. This is kind of the quintessential, that's Amazon Prime Video. I know what it is. I'm going to sign up for it. Um, what I'm most interested in, as we, as we talk about, you know, ratings, one of the ratings that we're not going to get just because of the way that Nielsen reports, we won't have access to this, but I'm very interested in how fast that decay is, how fast that drop off is, you know, after let's say episode seven, eight, nine, whatever it goes up to, um, and people either kind of just walking away from it, like they're done with the season, which is what we see with most dramas like a Game of Thrones, or is there an audience that continuously kind of comes to the show as, as more people come to Amazon Prime in general, whether it's Thursday Night Football? Is it the marquee show that kind of continuously finds an audience throughout the, throughout the year and they build upon that? Or is it something where it's really high for a season and then falls right off, which is traditional? And I think with Amazon, there's the potential for the former to happen. There is a potential for this to kind of be the revolving door show that people kind of come into Amazon or they come into watch an MGM thing, or whatever it is going to be. And they come back to the show. Yeah, that is interesting because I don't know as as well executed as the show is. I don't know that it is engendering a generation of fans that are going to be obsessed over this show. Maybe ultimately, and they just started production on season two today, actually. So maybe it will, but it's not going to be Game of Thrones. I don't think. Um, and I think 
HBO knows that. I mean, if you look at what HBO Max has been doing over the past few weeks, they have been offering a discount to people who sign up for HBO Max for a year. And I think that's super smart because what they're doing is they're trying to capture that Game of Thrones person who comes in for the show and might leave after the show. They're saying, okay, you get a discount if you come in for a Game of Thrones show and then stay for a year. Yeah. And I mean, this is the phrase that I use quite often, which is small gains and small pains, right? So they have the small pain of ARPU. They're sacrificing that average revenue per user because they're dropping it down to that level. But their idea or their thesis is that the, you know, the 12 month, 16 month, um, carry through of that customer, which will then come into the $15 a month or the $10 a month or whatever plan they want to go with is really going to help us in the long run. And when they're trying to amass subscribers, having that discount option available is extremely smart. I agree. There's analysts who would disagree. There's analysts who would say, you know, you're going to get a bunch of subscribers. Why would you not just keep the $15 and then drop it and then find a way to kind of keep them after I like, I like this a lot. And I think what we're talking about with ratings in general and people watching stuff and then, you know, especially as we see more cable cutting happening, especially as we see more people globally sign up for streaming services, we're talking about what makes a successful move on, on the budget. What is the one-to-one, dollar-to-dollar trade-off that you're going to do? And so on the one hand, you have Rings of Power and House of the Dragon, very expensive shows, both designed to accomplish very big things. And on the other end, you know, I think you have stories that are kind of like, uh, I, you know, I'd point to something like Community and Peacock. And I think like that's a smart bet for that streaming service. Like I think oh, they're making a community movie that will air on Peacock. Yeah, and they're going to bring this show over. And I think that finds an audience that overlaps with The Office and, and their comedies. And you kind of have something there and you hope to build up a, a subscriber base. And I think with Rings of Power, there's just so much pressure on this and, and so much financial pressure on this. Um, again, just from like looking at it as an entity, not just as Amazon as a whole, to really succeed beyond measure and beyond what we can even really think about or compare it to, because there hasn't really been, any, been anything to compare it to. The thing I always come back to, um, and the question I've, I've had going on in my head, I had a conversation with a, uh, an executive this weekend, and they mentioned to me offhandedly, they said, wouldn't it be interesting if Netflix got Rings of Power? Like, wouldn't it be an interesting if Netflix, with that global subscriber base that is only engaged with video, and when they're going through this period of trying to figure out how do they find their next big, you know, fantasy sci-fi series, if they actually outbid or whatever it was, they got the rights to it. What does that look like? What does that show look like on that platform with that audience? And I think it's a question that stuck with me because with Amazon, they're trying to define an audience. They're trying to define a brand. They're trying to say, this is what we are capable of and we're going to do more of this. And I wonder if it kind of has a moment and then just fades, mm. right? There's the thing that happens every year, year and a half. There's new Rings of Power show on Amazon. You open it up for the first time then. And I wonder what that would have looked like if we were talking about House of the Dragon on HBO Max versus Rings of Power on Netflix and what that might be. It'd be like the gray man with elves. We'd be talking about how expensive it is, how it's not that great, how it should be better. And on Amazon, everyone's like, well, this is pretty good. This is, you know, I'll watch this. <laughs> right? I mean, everyone but, just loves yeah. to shit on Netflix. Yeah, I think unfairly so. To to a, some of a it is unfair. Extent. Some of it is not. I mean, Gray Man was pretty bad and yeah. should not have cost two hundred million dollars. Well, I mean, I think you when you're paying for the Russo brother is when you're you're, you're trying to bring them away from working solely with the uh, the Mouse House. HBO Max also leading in the coveted uh, Twitter apology category. They have an HBO Max helpline that tweets at people, and there's this hilarious thread 
from last night's episode, which apparently was very dark on people's screens. And it was like the, 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 the form response is, hi there. We appreciate you reaching out about a night scene in house of the dragon episode seven, appearing dark on your screen. The dimmed lighting of this scene was an intentional creative decision. Thanks. And they're just tweeting this at everybody who complains on Twitter. Why is game of Thrones so dark? Oh God. I mean, literally and figuratively, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I wish that I had any form of critical sensibility to be like, ah, yes, well, this is exactly why you do something like this. It just though is so funny to me because our technology at home has gotten so much better and somehow everything on our, I watch at home has gotten worse. Like, I just feel like it's like, wow, this TV from Sony or whoever is like so incredible. This dynamic sound and the dynamic vision and whatever it is, is so great. And then I'm watching House of the Dragon. I'm like, I don't know. I can't make out anything. And it's amazing. Mandalorian has scenes like that where I'm like, I can't make out what's happening. And I don't know if it's because you're there watching it on different screens. It's because you have to like, you have to rejigger your TV settings. And unless you're Chris Nolan, you can't figure out how to do that. I, I will say I'll give HBO Max credit. Uh, truly, you know, all news is good news or what is it? All press is good press or whatever it is. Oh, it just uh, means people care. Lizard, I mean, no one's complaining about the darkness of scenes on Sandman on Netflix or something like that. Do you, do you remember when Disney Plus would go down all the time with like WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier and Mandalorian and everyone was like, this is terrible. And I was like, Disney gets to say every week our shows are so popular. <laughs> it keeps crashing our servers. And this is that. I opened up TikTok today as I do in the morning and it was all House of the Dragon. And half of it was just, you know, memes about Matt Smith's character and all them. And the other half, though, was memes about the darkness. But it's the only show right now on TikTok. So right. congrats to know, Casey Bloys. I feel a little bad for Andor, the Star Wars show. I just feel like nobody's really talking about that. It's got a long run, though, right? That that show's got 12 episodes, 13. It's a long show. Hmm. And they're only on episode four or five. Or, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't caught up with it yet. I will watch it. But I got to say, I watched the first episode and some dude gets shot in the head. I'm like, nope, kid not watching this one. <laughs> um, all right, one to ten. Give me your assessment on how it's going for House of the Dragon and how it's going for Rings of Power. We'll start with Rings of Power. One to ten. 6.5. Okay. Underwhelming. Underwhelming. Yeah, that's what I would say for that. And House of the Dragon. 7.5. I think it's also slightly underwhelming, but I'm enjoying it more. So personally, I feel that way, but also just from an analytical perspective, just the level of investment and in... in um, and what's engagement I've seen across the board is much better for House of the Dragon than than, than Rings of Power. So I think it's still, but it's still slightly underwhelming. It's fun, but none of them are kind of knocking my socks off. Hmm. All right, well, we will check in at the end of the shows and figure out who actually won the season, which show. Thank you, Julie Alexander. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Craig, did you see the news today? Apple, they went for it. They decided to go all in. They are going to release the Will Smith movie, Emancipation, which uh, dropped a trailer today. They're going to release it in theaters in early December, followed a week later globally on Apple TV+. And that is a big move. A lot of people were speculating as to whether that movie would actually come out this year, given the controversy around Will Smith from the Oscars this year. If it's a good movie, people will see it, and you never underestimate people's willingness to see a movie with a controversial 
actor in it. Yeah, my prediction on this is I think that very few people will see this movie in theaters for a variety of reasons, one of which is the scandal, and another is just it's a difficult movie. It's about a, a slave escape and his path back to his wife. Um, I think everybody will watch this on Apple TV+. Plus. And I think it's going to be huge for them, just given the controversy around it. I don't know if people will shy away from seeing it in theaters because of the slap. I don't. I mean, you're practically anonymous when you go see a movie anyway. It's not like you're announcing it to the public. Um, True, but I, I do think that some for some people, it's a big deal that he's coming back in this way. I mean, th th there's an entire PR apparatus that has been thinking about how to roll out this movie for the past six months. I mean, if you saw what they did is they debuted it this past weekend with the Q&A with the NAACP and with the Congressional Black Caucus in D.C., with Will Smith, with the director, Antoine Fuqua, that was a very choreographed event to position this movie as being important, which it is. It is a slave drama, and it's Will Smith's first time playing this kind of character. And then, lo and behold, two, two days later, they drop the trailer and the release date and say, yes, we're going all in. There was a very fluffy interview that Antoine Fuqua did with a media outlet that then kind of tries to position this as being not about Will Smith, but being about everybody else around the movie, which makes sense. I mean, and I should disclose here, my wife is a talent manager. She actually represents someone involved in the movie. So, uh, you know, there is a school of thought that this movie should have come out this year because why should everybody else get punished for what Will Smith did? There is another school of thought that says, you know what? Too soon. Give it a rest. Maybe try this movie next year when the specter of what happened at the Oscars is not so fresh and when people are more willing to welcome him back. Um, I tend to fall into the latter category. I think they should have waited on this movie, but I totally see why they are going for it this year as well. I kind of lean towards the former. I think if it's a good movie, release it and, and see how it does. And I think they're doing the smart move by crafting the narrative that this is not just about Will Smith. And I'm sure they're making a concerted effort to not praise him too much uh, in the in the run-up to this movie. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how he is used in the promotion of the movie because he did post it on his social media today and he likely will be out there saying nice things about it and probably very carefully selecting the media outlets that he does. And, you know, he's he is eligible to be nominated for Oscars. He is not eligible to attend the Oscars because he was banned for 10 years for what he did to Chris Rock on stage. Um, he renounced his membership in the Academy, but you can still be nominated. And everybody else, obviously, is still eligible and can attend the show. So this could be an awards movie. We haven't seen it. We don't know. I don't. I hate when people pronounce movies Oscar contenders before they've seen the movie. But if this movie is as good as people think it is, it could be an Oscar contender. And <laughs> Will Smith just won't be allowed to attend. He shouldn't be allowed to win. I can't believe he's still allowed to win. It is kind of amazing if you that you can do that on stage and still be allowed to win an Oscar. Uh, but that's the way the Academy rules work. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank Julie Alexander for coming on. And I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We'll see you Wednesday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. 
You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.